Good morning, dear family. It is so good to be here with you, to be in person with you all. We have missed you terribly. Even those of you who we don't know yet, um, it is such uh, a privilege to be connected with you, to know that you are praying for us. Um, It's been really sweet to be able to come in virtually. Um, Even seeing the backs of your heads has been encouraging to us. Um, Don't forget to once in a while turn around and wave at the camera. Um, Because there are people out there who would love to be with you, I'm sure. Um, It's really been uh, a challenging year, hasn't it? And, um, And then some. And this is really a a blessing to me to be able to um, have this opportunity to share from God's Word with you, to, as it were, love you collectively um, by by bringing the Word this morning. And I was really glad of, of the privilege. I was not real excited about this passage because... Uh, it's a hard one. And Ecclesiastes, I mean, whose idea was this? <laughs> to do Ecclesiastes. Um, but it's the Lord's Word, and He has good stuff for us, and I think if we can go there together, uh, in Ecclesiastes 7 today, we, uh, I think there's some gold for us to mine in this. I think there's some there's some good art here. Uh, as an artist, I'm always looking for the art in the Scripture. And I am never disappointed. Um, the Lord has uh, just such beautiful things going on. And even in a hard passage like this, coming uh, at a time in a hard season for New Life Dresher, uh, this past year and this past week, has been one of of grieving and loss and um, just so many so much suffering and i I'm not sure you know I would have loved to have brought a real wonderful cheerful joyful passage um, but this is a hard one but I think it's I think the good stuff is there for us and Christ is in it as the author and the artist behind it so um, I want to encourage you to go there with me. And in the beginning, um, we uh, we have this moment in history recorded for us in Mark. Um, Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus at a big party. And there's all this feasting and celebrating and enjoying going on. And she comes in and she brings this jar of nard, pure nard. It's a very expensive uh, perfume or ointment. And it's, at this point, she breaks it and, and pours it over Jesus' feet, and the people in, in this party are like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Do you realize how expensive that is? And there's something, um, as we read, as we begin uh, Ecclesiastes 7, that I think is important in that story because 
she's actually been referred to by a number of different people as the first Christian artist. Taking a valuable material and doing something powerfully meaningful in a way that shows that she gets it. She gets the truth. Let's read this passage together and see if we can, like Mary Magdalene, get it. Along with the preacher here, with Koheleth. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 24. This first part is going to be more like uh, a list of Proverbs, and then the second part more of sort of the musings of the preacher. So let's read it together, or I'll read it for you. You can follow along. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the weak, the, the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who seek the sun, who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest, your heart, uh, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. 
but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? This is God's Word. Oddly, that last line is appropriate, and if you can almost hear the the mysterious tunes of a Lord of the Rings movie, you can hear the voice of Koheleth asking that which has far, been far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? So Mary Magdalene gained a better name, a good reputation, didn't she? In pouring out that precious ointment. And did not Jesus himself pay Mary that good name with lavish generosity? When he said, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, this woman will be remembered. What she has done will be remembered. Somehow, Mary Magdalene in the midst of all this mirth, in the midst of this house of feasting, she got it. For this expensive perfume that she must have saved up all her money and spent all that she had to get was one that would be used to anoint the dead. Is it possible that she understood Something about the house of mourning. So that first line uh, comes off as a nice proverb. Uh, A good name is better than precious ointment. Kind of makes sense. We're familiar with Proverbs 22, where it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is actually better than silver or gold. We can, we can resonate with that. It's good to have a good reputation and, and probably even better than being rich. So that kind of makes sense. But this second line is kind of a gut punch. And the day of death, then the day of birth. Is it possible that the, the moment of leaving this life is actually better than the hardship of just beginning it? The preacher is asking, oh, it's so hard to go through this life, all the curse of it, all that is bent and broken, all that pushes against me. Is not the day of departing it better than the day of entering into it? It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools." This also is vanity or vapor. 
What is he saying here? Is it possible that sorrow, a sadness of face, makes the heart glad? That's just, I don't get that. That's paradoxical. Is he going to tell us that somehow things are opposite, that it's better to be sad? We don't buy it. It's not true. You can't come to me with sad news and your face streaming with tears and I'm going to be like, yay! No, that just it doesn't work that way. We don't respond. Sadness of face. But is it possible that the sadness of my own face, my own tears, my own weeping, my own dealing with the grief, somehow leads to my heart being made glad? If we could understand this, maybe we, the living, would lay it to heart. And maybe that's why he's saying that to be at a funeral is a good thing for us. It's a sobering moment. It helps us to realize how desperately in need we are of God's intervention and his rescue. Because this is not all there is. It's going by fast. It's fading It's all unraveling. And we can either hang out there and just say, oh, it's all hopeless, it's all a waste, it's all going away, woe is me, and get lost in in the sadness. Or we can escape it by just hanging out in the house of mirth, can't we? We can just party all the time. We can just try and be funny and laugh and try and just make everything good and optimistic. But I think what he's calling for here is something of balance. In the same way that Paul in Thessalonians says, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. There's something different about our suffering. Isn't there? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of the fools, the song of fools, is this thing he he likens to the crackling of thorns under, under a pot. I love to cook on a fire. I don't know if you have any experience with this, um, but I've always loved cooking on fire. Uh, cooking on a campfire. Uh, it's just something I just enjoyed ever since my early days in Scouts. And I learned that there are certain woods that are good for cooking on and certain woods that are not. If you put some pine cones in there, boy, do they snap, crackle, and pop. They make a lot of wonderful noise. They make bright, colorful flames. But they're gone in an instant. And your pot is still cool. You need some good hardwood in there. There's something about the wisdom here of a campfire that helps us understand that to live in the house of mirth all the time, to try and entertain ourselves 
to escape the reality of the house of mourning uh, is not going to sustain us. It doesn't bring life. It just snaps and crackles, and then it's gone. And it leaves us scrounging around for more. And you know what happens when you go gathering thorns to throw in the fire. You get pricked. This is also vanity. Is it possible that there is something in the sobering reality of of dealing with death, of dealing with our mortality, of dealing with the brokenness and the hard that's right now right in front of you, that is actually what you're called to? It's easy to say, why were the former days better? There's really no reason for us to gaze longingly back at days that are past. They hold nothing special or better. In fact, uh, the preacher has said in in Ecclesiastes 1, he says, what has been is what will be. And there is nothing new under the sun. To gaze longingly backwards at another time, at another day, uh, and not deal with right now what's right in front of you, denies yourself the opportunity to, by faith, have contentment in the now. Which is really what the Lord is calling us to. He wants you to be present right here, right now. Can we have contentment in the now? In all of this, in all of this hard, in all of this this idea that the end is somehow better than the beginning, that somehow it's better to to be thinking about death, sort of doesn't make sense to us. It rubs us the wrong way. And it's interesting that in verse 13 here, he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? How quick are we to tell God that he should or might straighten what he has already made crooked. Perhaps his aim is actually to straighten us by that very crook in our lives. You know what I mean. There's there's something in your life, there's something that you have seen, there's something you're going through that feels so broken and crooked and wrong, and you say, God, if you could just straighten that, everything would be good. If you could unbend What's been bent? If you could remove this cancer, if you could just make it all go away, if you could take this trouble out of my family, if you could take this sin out of of my patterns and my habits, if you could straighten what you've made crooked, that would be be much better, don't you think? This is where it it does us well to read the last few chapters of Job, right? 
where Job is questioning God for all that he's doing. And God says, wait a minute, who are you? Are you the one who holds the storehouses of the snow? Did you measure out the foundations of the earth? Did you cut the cornerstone and put it in place? Have you led Leviathan out into the seas? Do you know the time that the deer will give birth? Have you walked the black, dark caverns in the bottom of the ocean? This is where it's good for us to be questioned by God, to remember and to fear God, to remember that he is God and we are not. Right? Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, Boyce, uh, when he was dying of cancer, spoke one last time to the congregation at 10th Press. And in his uh, address, he actually brought up this passage, asking who can make straight what God has made crooked. He said, would you try and straighten what God made crooked? Or would you remember the crooked cross our Savior endured unto death? so that he might straighten out forever all that was made crooked? What a great question. God endured the crooked cross of all that summarize how it's not supposed to be this way. For the joy that was set before him. A joy of straightening out something that was impossible to straighten out. Ask yourself right now, would you straighten what's crooked in your life right now? Would you say to God, straighten this. I know better. It's what should be done. Or would you rather wait to see how your Heavenly Father is planning to perfectly straighten out what is crooked? in his perfect timing. In uh, the Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 126, the, the pilgrims are going back up to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And they're, they're praising God for releasing them from captivity. And they're, they're thanking him. They're saying, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream." Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. So the remembering that he has restored, the remembering his faithfulness, but at the same time they're saying, Lord, restore our fortunes, because they knew there was still much that was not yet restored. There were still those caught in captivity. They themselves were still broken, and their city was a, was a heap of rubble. And they said, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I think there's something in the, in the wisdom here of the tears that we are called to shed. 
The hard that's in front of you, the crooked, brings tears. It's broken. It's hard. But in it are seeds to be sown. Like the farmer who has a handful of seed. And he knows he can either make bread for his family from that seed. Or he can let go of it into the ground and let it die. Because if it dies, it will bring forth much fruit. And so he he plants with tears. And we, in this life, where we're walking, we are sowing seeds of tears. We sow tears that say, it's not supposed to be this way. And he responds back with, Oh, wait for what I'm going to harvest from that. Oh, I can't wait to show you the harvest. Because as you come back in with the Lord of the harvest on that day, you're going to be just, you're going to be laughing. Those tears of, of hardship are going to come out as tears of joy. You're going to sing uncontrollably. When my mom was dying of cancer, uh, a lot of you walked with her through that season and knew her. And um, when she was when she was in those end days, it was really hard. We we wept a lot, but there was something about those days that I I often still wish I could go back to. Because I was so aware, we as a family were so aware of God's presence, of the nearness of heaven. It was like, I remember realizing in that time that it was like uh, a blind man standing near a door. And he doesn't know if the sun is shining or not, because he's blind. But somebody opens the door. And that sunlight hits his skin. What happens when that sunlight hits your skin? It's like goosebumps, right? You feel the warmth of it, especially if you're in air conditioning, right? You feel the sun. The blind man is suddenly aware that it's a bright and sunny day. And in that same way, we were aware, as my mom was transitioning from this life to standing before God, we were aware that that kingdom was very close. That veil was very thin. Heaven was right there. God was right there present with us. And though I wept for many days, though I was crippled by grief many days, There was something about being able to hear the hardship of another person. And and I would just, somebody would share something hard in my life, in their life with me. And I would just start to cry. And I felt like I should apologize for my tears. Because I was like, they're sharing their story, but here I'm blubbering over my own loss. But it, 
it began to occur to me that in my tears, it was actually ministry to that person. People thanked me for weeping. I thought I wasn't supposed to cry. I thought I was supposed to hold back. I thought I was supposed to be strong. I thought I was supposed to say really good, nice things and hopeful things. But there was something in my tears that actually ministered to people. It made me realize these tears were important. And so I want to I encourage you that as you face the hard, as you wonder whether it's wise to be in the house of grief, in the house of mourning, or whether you should really try and just live all your life in the house of mirth, keep everything hunky-dory. I want to encourage you that your tears are precious. They're gold. And you share in the sufferings of Christ when you weep them. And you minister to others when you shed them. You plant seeds. And on that day, Christ has promised. And there's nothing that can undo it. That there will be a harvest. We will carry in those sheaves. You see... Wisdom, Koheleth says, is not going to save you. He says, don't be overly wise. Don't be overly righteous. And he's not talking about, uh, don't be too good. Be bad a little bit. That's not what he's saying. It's probably best captured by the, the great prophet, Billy Joel, when he said, only the good die young, it's as if he's saying, look, if only the good die young, then there's nothing to be gained by being too good, right? So tone it down a little bit. Or, is Koheleth saying something more like, If we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, is it even possible to be too righteous? Maybe what he's saying is don't be overly proud of your righteousness. Don't put too much stock in your righteousness. Don't live like the Pharisees. Don't be overly self-righteous. And don't make yourself too wise. Don't put too much stock in your own wisdom. But live in this place where you are dependent upon the face of God in your face. Isn't that really what he most wants? Is you saying, I don't get it. It's all broken. It hurts. But I believe you, Father, that what you are doing and what you have done is enough for me. So I'll weep my tears here. But I'll weep with hope. It's about fearing him and understanding that he is God and that I'm not. I need to understand that 
his mysterious ways are not understandable to me, but they're good. And where this is heading is a harvest, is a celebration, is a party that will, will not end. No more tears, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more grief, no more cancer, no more sin. That's where we're headed. It doesn't mean just live as if that's the only good, because he's actually begun to work it in you. He has begun to work in you, making all things new. So, see it. So that you're balanced with praise for the fortunes he has restored and humility in asking the God who has made and understands everything to restore fortunes, knowing with confidence that he will. Is it possible that the wisest thing that you can do is to realize that not even being wise will save you? Does this sort of make moot the whole summer preaching series? Wisdom isn't enough. It's insufficient. Or is it calling us to realize that there is one who is sufficient, who is enough? And that having our face in his face will satisfy our souls in this death-filled and disappointing life. It will lift our hearts. So, Weep the tears that you're called to weep, but hold on to that hope unshakable. Walk in the hard that you're called to walk in right now. Walk in the crooked and do it by faith. Rest more today than you did yesterday in the righteousness that you have in Christ than in your own which ends up being foolishness anyway and not really able to even warm the pot. Remember that when the Lord in his perfect timing straightens all that strikes you as impossibly crooked in this life, it's going to make you burst out in joyous laughter and song. So sow the tears and know that he is at work. This is a by-faith stuff, isn't it? You have to believe. Andrew Peterson has a song called The Sower's Song, and in it he says, uh, in the first line, in the first verse, he says, O God, I am furrowed like the field, torn open like the dirt, and I know that to be healed, that I must be broken first. I'm aching for the yield that you will harvest from this hurt. And that song goes on to to acknowledge that just like the snow and the rain don't fall to the earth without producing a crop, 
without bearing much fruit. Bringing more seed to the sower and bread for the hungry. So shall the word of the Lord not return void. Is it possible that we can actually sing and say, it will not return void. It will not return like vapor, like vanity. Even this brokenness that I walk in right now, even these furrowed fields, even this torn flesh, Can we sing and say, Lord, I believe that it will not return void what you are doing. It will not return void. It will not return void, but it will return to you with shouts of laughter and singing. With a harvest beyond anything anyone can count. And we shall be led in peace and go out with joy. It is because he, the sower, the one who wept because he was human, he leads us. So follow him. It's as simple as that call to his disciples. Follow him. Put your face in God's face. Say, I need you. I can't do this without you. And he will answer. And he will say, oh, my child, I can't wait to give you that precious white stone with your name on it, known only to you and to me. Then you will hear him say, well done. We are the living. Will we lay it to heart that wisdom will not save us? But he is saving us. And the trajectory of that is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this, your word. It is complicated and difficult, but it is so sweet to be reminded that you are all we need. Would you help us to grow in wisdom? but to not live as if wisdom is going to save us? Would you help us to weep tears, but not be overwhelmed by them? Lord, would you help us to celebrate all that is good, all that is beautiful, all that is lovely and worthy of praise, but to realize with wisdom that even these things will be far surpassed by what you have for us in your great love and in your perfect plan. Would you help us to walk by faith in this and to sing well? In the name of Jesus, amen.